0: You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit Driven. Father, bless your word to us this morning. We're so grateful for the opportunity. We think, Lord, of how well we have you as a perfect father, a loving father. And now, Lord, we want to come as your children and come and receive from your table. So bless us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we come to Acts chapter 9, I I feel a little bit strange about this because uh, I want to say this. I want to say, oh man, now it really starts getting good in the book of Acts. But I don't want to imply for a moment that it's been bad at all in the previous part. I I mean, I think it's been great all along, but I I will tell you this. With Acts chapter 9, we come into a whole different phase of the book of Acts because we're coming to deal with the life of a man who's been briefly introduced to us before but from this point on is going to be the leading person in the book of Acts. Not the only person dealt with. We're going to see more from Peter, more from John, more some of the other guys. But man, the man that we're going to deal with beginning now in Acts chapter 9, he rises to a prominence in the book of Acts and in God's work in the first century that really draws our attention. And of course, I'm calling about the man that's spoken to us here in, in verse 1 of Acts 9 as Saul. Saul specifically of Tarsus. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now we last saw Saul in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, where it says that he, quote, that he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The, the, the vision there of uh, Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 8 verse 3 is sort of a wild man, a crazy man, a fanatic. A man who was willing to make other people suffer for the sake of their faith. He was a persecutor of anything that didn't fit within his bounds of what he thought was a way to serve God. Now he was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. He was a man well accomplished in the world of Judaism of his day. But he was a man deeply conflicted in his own heart, as we're going to see in a few moments. But he was a man who very energetically persecuted the first Christians. So much so that that not only did he begin doing that persecuting work in Jerusalem, he took it on the road. He expanded that work to the city of Damascus. Damascus was about 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem. This was a six-day journey from Jerusalem. He was willing to go a far distance to persecute people. Isn't that interesting? We think of some people being willing to go to a far distance to maybe preach the gospel or spread the gospel. Quite the opposite. Saul of Tarsus was willing to go through a lot of trouble and be a missionary of persecution, so to speak, going to Damascus to see what Christians there could be prosecuted. It says right there in verse 1 that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Again, get the picture in your mind. This is an angry, violent man, absolutely convinced of the rightness of his own cause. Don't make any mistake about it. Saul of Tarsus, he hated the disciples of the Lord. I really want to paint that picture strongly for you because I want you to understand that when God reached down and got Saul of Tarsus, Saul wasn't seeking God at all. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus and his followers. We might say that Saul was decided against Jesus, but Jesus decided for Saul. That's how I want to think about it today, right now. You know, I think about people here, right here, right now. You have decided against Jesus, but Jesus has decided for you. Maybe you don't even know it yet, but Jesus has decided for you. It's time for you to wake up to that fact. That Jesus has decided for you, even though you've decided against him. And i just like to think that God's decision counts a little bit more than yours does right now. But listen, Saul wasn't seeking after that. It's a wonderful thing when people are seeking after God in one way or another. And they come to find God. But that wasn't Saul's situation at all. He was persecuting the followers of Jesus. Now... This idea of this angry, violent man, it's captured people's attention throughout the centuries. And of course, as they capture their attention, they think about what Saul might have looked like. We don't know what Saul looked like. But there's an old apocryphal book dating to the end of the first century, so, so after the death of Paul, uh, many decades after. I- I'm not trying to say that this is an accurate representation of what he looked like, but it's about the only one we have, so we'll just kind of guess that it might be true. This is what it says. It described man like uh, Paul like this. A man of moderate stature, with crisp hair, in other words, kind of frizzed out, crooked legs blue eyes, large, knit brows. In other words, he had that like caterpillar thing going on over the head. And a long nose, kind of that classic, I'll just say that classic nose. And at times looking like a man, at times like an angel. Isn't that interesting? Kind of the vision you have is a man who just didn't look very impressive. I mean, he wasn't going to be on the cover of anybody's magazine. But yet there was something about him, especially the post-conversion Saul of Tarsus, right? Sometimes looking like a man, sometimes with the countenance of an angel. Well, anyway, we're dealing with Paul pre-conversion here. Verse 1 says that he went to the high priest, and Saul did his persecuting work under the direct approval of the highest authorities. He went to the high priest over the Jewish people at that time, and he received strict approval. Letters is what they gave him to be able to go out and do that persecuting work. He asked and he received those letters from the high priest that authorized his mission. Now, I find something fascinating here, and I'm just going to throw it in. The high priest that's mentioned here is a guy named Caiaphas. And in December of 1990, an ossuary was found. Interesting. What's an ossuary? I'll explain to you what an ossuary is. It's a small box, usually made out of stone. And typically you could call it a bone box. You see, in ancient Israel at that time, what they would do is they would put somebody in a tomb. But in that culture and in that climate, the bodies would decompose very quickly. And it wouldn't be long until there would just be bones remaining in the tomb. And so you know what they would do with those bones? They would very respectfully gather those bones up and they would put them in a box like that so that another person in the family could be put in the tomb. These bone boxes or ossuaries were oftentimes made according to the standing of life that the person had. So if you were a high person of great means, there was sort of this idea that you had a fancy box. And in December of 1990, they discovered one of these ossuaries in Jerusalem, and it was inscribed with the name of Caiaphas, and it was positively dated from the first century AD. In it, it contained the remains of a 60-year-old man whom many researchers believe, I mean, I suppose it would be difficult to prove with absolute certainty, But many researchers believe that these are the bones of this very Caiaphas, this very same high priest who presided over the trial that sent Jesus to the cross, that that, that, uh, judged the apostles when they stood before him, and that gave Saul of Tarsus these letters of recommendations that he could go out and do his persecuting work. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? If it's true, these are the first physical remains, such as bones or ashes, from any specific person mentioned in the New Testament. I just need to mention that because every once in a while, you'll get some people who think that the book of Acts, well, it's just, you know, it's kind of like a romance novel, right? It might have a few connections with history, but it doesn't really connect with history. These are just made up people, right? Just like a screenplay or something like that. No. At point after point after point in the whole narrative of the book of Acts, it is absolutely demonstrated to be historically accurate. And so we can take this testimony as being reliable. Anyway, verse 1, again, it tells us that Saul was still breathing threats and murder. And this phase of his life, when he was such an energetic, violent persecutor of the church, this left a great impression on him. You see, even after Saul became a Christian, he still remembered these years of his life as a persecutor. In in Philippians chapter 3, he made mention of this background. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's how Saul of Tarsus was. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. And I just need to read you one other passage that Paul speaks about. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul added even more regarding his background. He says this, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God without measure or beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This wouldn't want you to understand. Saul of Tarsus was a very religious man, but it was misguided religion. It was religion that was too much shaped by hatred. But by a misguided understanding of who God is and what God wanted for man. You see, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who was a highly educated man, he thought that Christianity was both wrong and deceptive. When he heard people preaching the resurrection, he got outraged. When he heard people advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, something stirred within him and said, not just as this is wrong, but I have to do everything I can to stop it. You think, well, where would he get such an idea that he should persecute the followers of Jesus? I don't know. Maybe he took an example of somebody in the Old Testament named Phineas. In a very unique situation during the days of the Exodus wilderness wanderings, Phineas was a man who... who, Uh, saw an immoral man and an immoral woman disgracing the people of God, and he thrust them through with a spear. And God honored his actions by halting a plague. Maybe Saul thought, I'm going to take the example of Phineas, and I'm going to try to stop a plague of false religion by persecuting Christians. Needless to say, he was very misguided. And friends, it goes without saying, but I should say it anyway at this point in our time of looking at the book of Acts. It goes without saying that Christians should never persecute or hate others. We're going to put forth our message and we're going to put it forth more and more boldly. We're going to put it forth to the world without fear, without trepidation. This is who we are, and this is the message that God has given us to spread. But we will never, never do it in hatred or persecution of others. And I'll tell you what makes it kind of sad, is I say those words, knowing. Knowing that no matter what we do, we'll be accused of hating other people. Did you know that this is one of the earliest criticisms that was leveled against Christians? Christians were called haters of mankind in the first century. Do you know why? Just simply because they didn't join in the uh, immoral and the debauched living of everybody around them. And because of those things, they were accused of being haters of mankind, even though there wasn't any hatred. They loved the world. They wanted to bring the world the message of the gospel they live lives of gentleness and kindness to other people. Nevertheless, we understand that even as we do that today, whenever we spread the message, we are going to be accused in some quarters of being people of hatred. Well, listen, this is our determination that we're determined that we are always going to live in a way that those accusations are false. Now, people lie about us. They lie about us. We're going to make sure that those are lies, right? Everybody says we persecute somebody else. That's a lie. If anybody says we hate other people. That's a lie. No, we love God and we love people and we want to see them one to Jesus Christ and one to his truth in this world. Well, Saul didn't think that way at all. Matter of fact, if you notice in verse two, it says that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was on a hunt out searching for those who were followers of Jesus. But don't you find it interesting in verse two that Christianity is referred to in verse two as the way. Isn't that fascinating? That seems to be the earliest term for the Christian movement. And it's a fitting one. It's used five times in the book of Acts, referring to the Christian movement as the way. Yeah, I like that term. You see, the way means that Christianity is more than just a mere belief or an opinion or a set of doctrines. It means that following Jesus is a way of living as well as a way of believing or thinking. And by the way, I'm fascinated by the fact that there was a Christian community large enough in Damascus that Saul of Tarsus would be interested in persecuting it. He was concerned about the way and that it was spreading everywhere. So now let's check it out now, verse 3, where we read. As he journeyed, so as Saul of Tarsus is journeying towards Damascus, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Isn't that amazing? Verse 3 tells us that suddenly a light shone from heaven, and Saul of Tarsus heard a voice. Somewhere outside of Damascus, this suddenly happened. This spectacular event, we have to regard it as unusual. God does not normally confront sinners with a heavenly light and an audible voice from heaven. If it's happened to you, I'd love to hear about it. But this was unusual. By the way, in Acts chapter 22... Paul revealed that this happened at midday when the sun shines at its brightest. And yet Saul or Paul later said that this light was brighter than the sun. It was brilliant, this experience. Brighter than the noonday sun, this light appeared upon him. And what did he do? Verse 4 tells you that he fell to the ground. His reaction was simply to fall to the ground. I don't think it was out of honor or reverence to God. He wasn't bowing his knee to God? No. He was simply so overwhelmed. It was a survival instinct that drove him to the ground to try to hide the best he can from this heavenly light. I got to say, in the minds of many or most people, Saul fell from a horse that he was riding. You can see that in artist's depictions, right? Saul's riding a horse into Damascus. The heavenly light shines. He hears a voice. He falls from his horse. And the narrative goes on. Can I tell you something? I've looked at this very carefully. I've looked at it as it's described here in Acts chapter 9. Now later on in Acts chapter 22, Paul recounts it once again. And in Acts chapter 26, he recounts it a third time. And each time he fills in some other details that we didn't know before. But I'm telling you, folks, you could take a look at Acts chapter 9. You can take a look at Acts chapter 22. You can take a third look at Acts chapter 26. And you know what? There's no horse. There's no donkey. There's no mule. Now look, I have to be honest with you. There could have been a horse. There's just no mention made of one. It says that he journeyed. And it's just the generic word used for a journey. It says that he fell to the ground. It's not some specific Greek word. Don't you love how preachers always trying to bust some specific Greek word on you? You know, like... This is the specific Greek word for falling from a horse. No, it's not that at all. It's just a generic word for falling down. So all I can say is this, is that there's absolutely no mention made of a horse. Now, if you want to imagine that there's a horse there, like in our artist's depiction, fine, go ahead. Because the text also does not say that there was no horse. It just says that he was traveling and he fell to the ground. And listen, it's significant Here to notice this, though, that in this book of Acts that's relatively small, covering uh, almost a whole generation's worth of work among Christian people in the first century, that three times in the account, Paul describes his conversion. Here in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26. Why? I'll talk to you about that a little bit more later. But notice here, verse 4, it says, He heard a voice Saying to him, and what did the voice say? It cried out, Saul, Saul. Now that must have got his attention, right? A heavenly voice saying his name twice. Now it doesn't mean that he was in trouble because God said his name twice. We find this several times in the scriptures, right? When Jesus wanted to get Martha's attention, remember Mary and Martha? He said, Martha, Martha doesn't mean anger, it's just impassion. Martha, Martha, when Jesus stood over Jerusalem and mourned over the city, what did he say? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And so to get this, this feeling of deep passion in the heart of God for this man, Saul of Tarsus, God speaks from heaven and he says, Saul, Saul, verse 4, why are you persecuting me? As that heavenly light overwhelmed him? Saul was confronted by the true nature of his crime. He was persecuting God, not man. His persecution wasn't against Christians. His persecution was against Christ. Now Saul thought that he was serving God in viciously attacking Christians. But he found out here that he was fighting God. By the way, aren't you cheered by the fact that Jesus so closely identifies with his people, that when you persecute his followers, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. I think that there's great comfort for that. Anybody here who's going through it? I'm sure there's people here, you've suffered greatly. There's people here this morning, this Father's Day is tough for you. Because maybe you lost your father in the last year. You think about this, you think about how last year... Your father was with you here on this earth. And now this year, your father ha- has passed on to eternity. And there's a sorrow in your heart right here, now, this morning. Well, can I tell you something? Jesus identifies with your sorrow. He's there to comfort you in the midst of it. Why? Because this is how closely Jesus identifies with his people. That, that when he told Saul, Saul who was persecuting Christians, Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Saul, Saul, he didn't say, why are you persecuting them? He said, why are you persecuting me? But Saul did it thinking all along that he was really serving and honoring God. Friends, this has been sadly true through much of history. Often those who are convinced that they're doing God a favor do the worst persecution and torture that's ever been practiced. Isn't it both sad and ironic? And friends, like I say, even though it's been historically true of Christians in some situations, it should never be true of Christians today. Never. Now, notice what he says here. Why are you persecuting me? Me, he says. So you're not persecuting them. You're persecuting me. But notice not only the me in that phrase, notice the next idea. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing it? It's such a futile thing. Saul, I'm the guy with the heavenly light. Saul, I'm the guy with the voice from heaven. I'm the God of all power. Why would you ever try to persecute me? You can't possibly win persecuting me. Well, when will Saul ever understand? When will we ever understand We can't successfully fight against God. You can try. And what, wouldn't we say just about everybody in this room has? You've tried. You gave it your best shot against God. You gave him as much struggle as you could. Man, you fought against God harder than you ever fought against anybody. But you know what? Who ends up winning in the end, right? God does every single time. So what does he say? He says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus. Jesus. I love how he says that in verse 5. Now, did you know that Jesus was a fairly common name in that day? Fairly common. He hears a voice, "Uh, Hi, why are you persecuting Jesus? He says, I'm Jesus. Did Saul think for a minute, Now, which Jesus is talking to me here? (laughs) No, he knew exactly, right? Even though it was a fairly common name, the ascended Jesus of Nazareth needed no further an identification. When he said, I am Jesus, Saul knew exactly who was speaking to him. In all probability, I believe that Saul heard Jesus teach in Jerusalem. I think he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he probably sat in judgment of Jesus in the trial before his crucifixion. I'm Jesus speaking to you. And unless Saul was hallucinating, which Saul would tell you, I was not hallucinating, and there's no evidence that he was. No, The appearance of Jesus proved something here. It proved to him that Jesus was alive and Jesus was God. Could you imagine how that would shake your world? Now, Saul of Tarsus had heard the teaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. He had heard it. And when he heard it, what did he say? No, Jesus is dead. Now he knows Jesus is dead, is alive. He knows it very strongly in his heart. He had heard the teaching that Jesus was God. He said, no, Jesus isn't God. He he was a blasphemer who was executed on a cross, rightfully so. Now he knows that Jesus is God. To have your world so radically shaken, this man that I thought was dead, I know he's alive. This man who I thought was a great sinner and a blasphemer, not only do I know that he's holy, but he's God himself. This is a real revolution for Saul right here on the road to Damascus. Now, want you to notice here in verses five and six, Saul asked two very important questions, two questions that I think are vital for any human being to ask. The first question he asked was in verse five, and he said, who are you, Lord? That was the first question. The second question is in verse six. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Aren't those two great questions? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? I think just about everybody has questions that they'd like to ask God. I remember reading in the early 1990s a Gallup survey that asked people to choose three questions that they would like to ask God. And these were the top five responses of questions people would like to ask God. Are you ready for this? Here's the top five. First of all, will there ever be lasting world peace? Number two, how can I be a better person? Number three. What does the future hold for my family and myself? Number four, will there ever be a cure for all diseases? And number five, why is there suffering in the world? Those are the top five questions that people wanted to know from God. Now, you know what I think is strange about those questions? It's pretty much in some way or another, maybe not to everybody's satisfaction, but in one way or another, all five of those questions are answered in the Bible. God's given us the answer to those questions i tell you, you want to ask some good questions of God? Ask these two questions. Who are you, Lord? And then ask the second question. What do you want me to do? Those are two great questions. And Saul asked the right questions of God first in verse 5 and then in verse 6. T- take a look at first what he said in verse 5. He said, who are you, Lord? Now, if you're going to ask that question of God, you've got to ask it with a humble heart. And you need to ask it to God. Jesus showed us exactly who God is and how God can answer this question. And Paul spent the rest of his whole life wanting to know the answer to this question. Decades after this, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he had walked with God for so long, do you know what the cry of his heart still was? He says, that I may know him. I still want to know him. This God, this person revealed to me in Jesus Christ is so amazing, so magnificent, so, so multifaceted that I need to know him again and again, more and more, deeper and deeper. Who are you, Lord? That's a great question. But how about the second question? It's in verse six. What do you want me to do? I think it's interesting how few people really dare to ask God this question. What do you want me to do? Don't we usually ask it something like this? You know what I mean. Lord, what do you want me to do? <laughs> you know, we know it's kind of a religious thing that we should say, so we'll say it. But we don't really mean it. How about How about today's day you really ask? Now listen, you want to know the number one reason why people really don't ask that question in great sincerity? It's because they, they think God is mean, right? You think that if you really ask God, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. Just tell me what you want. God said, Oh good. Now I got them. Now I'm going to make them do those things that they hate the most in their life. You know, I'm so glad that they surrendered to me so that now I can torture them as if God was saying <laughs> such a thing. No. What a misshaping of the heart of God. Did you know the safest, smartest thing you can ever do with your life is say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do this because he loves you. He cares for you. A few people, even though they really dare to ask God that question, you got to ask it with submission and you got to do it with a heart that's ready to obey. By the way, did you notice that Saul asked that question personally? Lord, what do you want me to do? You, You see, I'm usually quite interested in what God wants you to do. That's how I like to ask that question. Lord, what do you want them to do? I'm more than ready to ask God that question. No, God turns it back on me all the time, does he? With a surrendered heart, I should ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? And if you notice, he said something else in verse 5 that's very interesting. Verse 5 says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. We read that and oh, go, What? Why would he kick, now you might misread goad and think it says gourd or something like that. Why would he kick against a pumpkin or a squash? No, 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 no. Why are you kicking against a goad? You see, what Jesus was doing is in just one line, he was delivering a very powerful parable, a mini parable to Saul of Tarsus right then. You see, do you know what a goad is? Well, first, I need to clear something up. The insertion of that line, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then that other line, Lord, what do you want me to do in verses five and six? It's accurate, but it may very well be that it wasn't in Luke's original text. It's definitely in Acts chapter 22, verse 10, and in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. No doubt about it. This happened on the road to Damascus because Paul tells us very specifically in Acts chapter 22 and 26 that it happened. So let's just take it as it is. Why do you kick against the goads? Do you know what a goad was? A goad is a long, very sharp stick used to get an ox going the way you wanted it to go when it was plowing. You would stand behind the ox with your plow, and you'd have this sharp stick. And when the ox didn't feel like plowing, and if I was an ox, I probably wouldn't feel like plowing much. That's hard work. You'd stop. How do you get the ox to go? You'd jab it with the stick. And then the ox would suddenly feel like going again, right? He'd go. You'd jab it with the go. Now, essentially, here's the parable. Saul is the ox. Jesus is the farmer. Saul was stupid and stubborn, yet he was valuable. Listen, that ox plowing the field is very valuable, right? You don't kill the ox because it won't plow the field. You jab it, you get it going. And the ox is also very useful to the master's service. So Jesus the farmer is goading Saul into the right direction. And that goading caused Saul pain. It hurt him. Why are you kicking against the goads? There he is, Jesus the farmer, jabbing Saul the ox. And Saul kicking against it. And Jesus goes, why are you doing this? You see, instead of submitting to Jesus, Saul kicked against the goad and it only increased his pain. Can you imagine that dumb ox thinking, well, if I kick enough, he'll stop jabbing me. No, you keep kicking, he's going to keep jabbing. Why don't you surrender and submit to the farmer, and then the jabbing will stop. Well, listen, I think this is really remarkable. You might be insulted by this. How would God compare us to an oxen? Isn't that, isn't that unfair? And I think it is unfair. It's very unfair to compare rebellious human beings to oxen. Because there is no oxen that has ever rebelled against God the way that you and I have. I think it's unfair to oxen. (laughs) They are way smarter than human beings when it comes to obeying God. Listen, this, this is this shows us that something was goading the conscience of Saul. Do you see him? despite all of his outward confidence. I hate those Christians. I'm going to persecute them. I'm going to go everywhere I can. I'm going to travel to Damascus. I'm going to get them, despite all of his assurance. There's something goading his conscience. There's something poking against him. And I think about that a lot of people today, right? You, you may feel very satisfied in your rejection of Jesus. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, other people do the Christian thing. That's not for me. Fine, fine. I don't need it. All the while, something's goading at your conscience, right? You feel the stick. You feel something stirring in your heart. God speaking to you. God calling to you, saying, no, 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 listen. You've got to stop rejecting. You've got to surrender to me. You've got to receive the work that my son did for you on the cross. He died on that cross to pay the penalty you can never pay. Do you think you can stand before me in your own self, and your own righteousness? No, you need to be enclosed in the righteousness of my son. And you feel that sticking at your conscience. Even on the outside, nobody would know it, right? Everybody thinks you're as cool as anything. Man, you don't need Jesus at all, right? That's the vibe. That's the image you put out to everybody. But just like Saul of Tarsus, there's something sticking your conscience. Can I tell you, it is hard to stick against the goats. It is hard to kick against them. Surrender to Jesus. That's what Saul needed to do. By the way, just in that line in verse 5, don't you see the compassion of Jesus? Saul, it's hard for you to do this. I'm concerned about the effect that it has on you. I want it to be easy for you, Saul, and you're making it hard on yourself. Why are you bringing all this pain and this misery in your life by rejecting me over and over again? Why don't you surrender to me and it won't be so hard on you? You know, Jesus could have said something like this. Yeah, Saul, I got my thumb on you, and I'm going to put it on you even harder until you reject, until you accept me. But no, 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 he didn't do that, right? It, with a plea in his heart. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, verse 6 tells us, so, that, so he, trembling and astonished... By the way, the fact that Saul was trembling and astonished by all this, it shows that it's not always pleasant to encounter heaven dramatically. This wasn't like, whoo, what a great spiritual experience, right? No, this caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. He was trembling. He was astonished. He wasn't oozing with warm, gushy feelings. Listen, encountering God is good, but it doesn't always feel good. And this is a reason why a lot of people reject God. You know, I think about the way we preachers talk all the time, right? This is a favorite line of us preachers. And I'm saying it's a wrong line, but you've got to understand how it sounds in the ears of many people. We preachers, we stand before you and say, you can have a personal relationship with God. Don't we say that a lot? It's true. But do you realize how unattractive that sounds to a lot of people? They're trying to get away from God. A personal relationship with God. No, thank you. It's like telling, you know, a a school child, you can have a personal relationship with the principal. (laughs) Are you kidding me? That child wants to keep as much distance between him and the principal as possible. Listen, okay, the principal, he's out there, he serves some function, great, the child thinks, wonderful. I just don't want to have anything to do with him. Isn't that how we think as school children? Well, look. You invite people to a personal relationship with God, and it's like, do I want that? I don't even think I want that. Listen, that instinct within you, this is some of what Saul of Tarsus was feeling, was it not? Listen, encountering God is good, but it doesn't always feel good, at least not at first. Many people would prefer to keep their distance, but our meeting with God is good, even when it doesn't always at first feel good. Now again... In response to this light, Saul no doubt shut his eyes as tight as he could. But do you see what the text tells us here? It says that he couldn't keep the light out. Notice what it says there, verses 5 and 6. He says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, uh, The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. There he is, shutting his eyes as tight as he can. Yet he couldn't get away from the light that was in front of him. And so he says, what do you want me to do? And then God tells him here in verse 7. By the way, I just need to say this. He tells him what he wants him to do in verse 6. Arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Jesus only told him the next thing to do. Right? Right? He didn't lay it all out before him. Now, he's going to tell him more in the coming days, as we'll see next week. But basically, he's told him the next thing to do. Are you okay with that? Honestly, are you okay with it? I often am not. I want Jesus to spell it all out. I've, Jesus, give me the five-year plan, and I'll feel much better, right? And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, what does Jesus know? I'm going to tell you what you should be doing right now. What about a year from now? No. What about a month from now? No. Next week? No. Tomorrow? Forget it. I'll tell you what to do today. And that's got to be enough for us. That's what he told Saul to do. Now, verse 7. The man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, right, they were closed before, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, this experience was incomprehensible to Saul's companions. But as Saul opened his eyes, that they were presumably just shut in terrified fear of what was going on around him. But when he opened his eyes, verse 8 tells us that he saw no one he couldn't see. Don't you see what God is almost saying? There's another little parable for Saul, right? You shut your eyes against my light and my Savior. Why don't you spend a few days being physically as blind as you have been spiritually blind? There he is blind being led into the city of Damascus. And verse 9 says, And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. It seems that Saul was so shaken by the experience that he was unable to eat, unable to drink for three days. All he could do was sit in a blind silence. And that's a humbling experience, folks. But that was a time when everything in his heart and mind must have been turned upside down, right? He's thinking about it all the time. Who is this Jesus? I rejected him, but he's for real. This is the true God. He does live. He is God. And everything was changing. And those three, can we not say this? That in some ways, when he encountered that heavenly light on the road to Damascus, he died a little death. And now three days later, he's going to be risen again to new life. In those three days, Saul was dying to himself. And it would only be after those three days of dying that he was going to receive resurrection life from Jesus. this is a glorious story. We've got to cut it off here. We'll pick it up at verse 10 next time. I don't mind if you read ahead. That's fine. You're not spoiling anything for yourself. But I can't get away from one last thought as we take a look at verse 7. Did you see what it says there in verse 7? It just kind of casually throws it out. The men who journeyed with him. Do you see that there were other people traveling with Saul? And yet none of them seem to have been converted. Now, if they were with Paul, they must have been sympathetic to his persecuting heart, right? Yeah, Saul, we're going to help you. Yeah, persecute the Christians. Yeah, let's go get them. They were just as hardened against God. Yet when that heavenly light shone, for whatever reason, it didn't impact them, but it impacted Saul. You can be very close to Jesus and to his work in somebody else, and yet fail to receive that work for yourself. Isn't that sobering? You can be right next to a flat-out miracle of God, and somebody else receives it, and you don't. I'll tell you what the difference is. The difference is just humbly receiving it in faith. So here it is, people. I hold up Jesus before you. There's Jesus on the cross paying the price that you could never pay for your sins. There's Jesus resurrected unto new life, ready to give you new life. And the person next to you can humbly believe it and receive it, and you can reject it. That's the awesome privilege that God gives to every person. But why not you decide for faith to Jesus right now today and receive that miracle that he gave to Saul of Tarsus so many years ago? Let's pray together right now. And in my prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to express your faith in Jesus if you'd like to do that this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are still working in lives in these dramatic and powerful ways that this kind of thing did not end with Saul of Tarsus, but you're doing it today all over the world. And Lord, in some way, in some fashion, I believe you're doing it today. So Lord, won't you speak to hearts right now that may want to make their decision for Jesus?